The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, the underdog king of underdogs, the loser king of losers, the heartbroken and rejected king of heartbroken rejects. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Not theirs. The broken king of the broken ones. The experts sorted Jesus to the trash pile and looked for better options. And yet, Jesus, you became our single foundation. The failed Messiah, the savior of the failures, we cherish you. Our worship of Hosanna so quickly sours into crucify him. Yet the father makes it Hosanna in the highest once more. And he uses that very stone of rejection to be the foundation on which we stand, immovable. This cross. Here's my sin. Here's how much I need him. Here's also my hope. Here's how much he loves me. I want to turn away from this image in, in all its pain I hate to look on Jesus in his suffering and his agony. He's the purest heart that's ever lived, and he's thrown down a hole and spat on by heartless cruelty. But this is the season of the year where we don't turn away. We make ourselves look. And as we look, we hurt. How are you so strong that you can afford to be so weak? How are you so light that you can Afford to become so heavy? How are you so sure of your commitment to us that you can let it go all the way into the exhausted uncertainty of that agonized cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just how far are you willing to go for us to learn that there's no distance you won't go for us in the name of love? And the cross answers this far. How deep is this love? Some have fallen into its depths and disappeared. And as we peer over the edge, we hear the echo of an answer. There's no bottom. I'm still falling. Sometimes I think the ever-expanding universe is some sort of Small picture, a limited small picture. It's the biggest thing we know, but it's ever expanding. And maybe it's some sort of picture of God's limitless heart. Over and over, as a church, you keep hearing me say that words fail me when I try to talk about God. And I feel that way again. In the face of this kind of being, in the face of this kind of love, I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which says, 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You're the awesome God in heaven, and we're just people here on earth. So as we come into your presence, you remind us to let our words be few so that we don't make promises we can't keep, so that we don't utter well-intentioned foolishness, so that we don't increase our sin through our own ignorance of our weakness, our cowardice, our pride, our frailty. We're so up and then down. We're so light and then dark. We're so praising and then cursing. It shouldn't be, but it often is. But you... You remain. So what words suffice? We don't preach ourselves as Lord, but Jesus is Lord. We don't put forth religion as the answer, but Jesus is the answer. We don't hold forth our worship and our obedience as our source of identity and pride and joy and hope. Rather, we hold Jesus as our righteousness, our life, and our wisdom. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Jews killed him, says one. No, the Romans killed him, says another. And I say, stop. People just like us killed him. This story is just like the Adam and Eve story, meant to be telling us deep things not about Adam and Eve, but about all of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him our sin, to set us free. This cross shows me my need. And that's not all. It's not nearly all. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own choice. We're not meant to look at this cross and say, I murdered him, I killed him. We're meant to say, he came for me. But I needed him to. He gave himself in love to set me free from the very thing in me that calls out crucify him. Through death, he destroys death. And through letting the devil do his worst, he exposes and casts the devil out. And through rejection, he becomes the cornerstone. There is a strength in turning the other cheek that's stronger than violence. There's a wisdom in being silent before your accuser that's wiser than the strongest arguments. Love whispers louder than any shout. And love dying is stronger than death. Love burns more hot than any river could quench. This love, your love, it's what you are. It's who you are. It's what you have to offer And so often, knowing this, catching it for a glimpse, we turn away. We medicate, we distract, we numb ourselves because our dreams are too heavy to bear in the midst of a fallen world. Our hopes are too scary to maintain in a world like this one. Our place in the family feels like too hard a responsibility for us to live up to, so we turn away, we put ourselves to sleep, we withhold our affection. We stay out of the dance. We listen to the voice of our own inner Pharisee, consumed by image and ego. Those voices that shout at us, hush, 
instead of your voice that whole heart, of wholehearted love that says, if they don't sing, if you don't dance, if you don't shout, the stones will cry out. Yeah, but Tim, you just said to let our words be few. Yeah, but that means not to make boasts about what you do. It doesn't mean not to make boasts about Jesus and who he is. All true worship is bragging. All true worship is bragging on the Lord. It's boasting in the Lord. All worship is a kind of rebellion. It's a kind of defiance against death and decay and despair and all this evil smog that just hangs in the spiritual realm over the whole fallen age. The worship is a defiance, a rebellion against that smog. And we are called to offer our hosanna. And we are called to have no illusions about ourselves. Both. Offering the Hosanna doesn't mean I'm boasting and bragging about me. I literally think some people withhold worship from Jesus because they think that somehow shouting and, and, and rejoicing and, and exulting in him would somehow be some kind of statement they're making that I'm all that in a bag of chips. And they literally, if you have that mindset, you will judge people who worship. You will think that what they're doing is saying, I'm amazing, I'm incredible. That's not it at all. I'm boasting about Jesus, not me. I'm boasting about Jesus, not me. I know me. I'm not impressed. I know him. I'm blown away. I'm so thrilled, not about me. I'm so thrilled about him. Why do you think Simon the Pharisee struggled to worship? No, he didn't. He didn't want to worship. Why do you think Simon the Pharisee withheld worship while Mary is weeping and pouring out her expensive perfume right on his feet, right there in the middle of being ridiculed by those people? Her worship came from having no illusions about herself. His was withheld because of his illusions. When I first met Jesus, I believed what I now call like worm anthropology. And what I mean is I viewed humans as really evil. Dirty, stupid, selfish morons. All of you. And me too. Shame on all of us for being today. Can't believe and I don't understand why he loves us, but for some crazy reason... God seems sweet on us crazy people. That was my gospel when I first got saved. Jesus has been unlearning me that and learning me something else. Over the years, the Lord's love feels much less mysterious to me.
feels much more tangible and much more trustworthy and much less mysterious. As that love has changed my thinking. Some people hear me talk like that and they go, oh my word, Tim is claiming he's sinlessly perfect. I've never once claimed that and I would not claim that now. It's funny how when you begin to agree with Jesus that you're worth saving and loving and that he's imparted his very nature to you, that some people think that you're still again boasting about yourself instead of him. There's Old Testament songs that welcome Messiah's arrival, and Psalm 118 is one of them, and another one is one of my favorites, Psalm 24, which talks about, open up you gates and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. You guys know the next part, right? Who is the Lord? Right? Who is this King of glory? They keep asking these hilarious rhetorical questions. Who is this guy? Who? That's a good question. The King of glory. Then it talks about who can ascend, well, actually, first it talks about who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in that holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't swear by what is false and doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. I think that's fantastic. Who can climb that mountain? They measure, mountain climbers measure to the ounce things they take with them. If it isn't necessary, it's gone. Because everything you take with you will drag you down or help you up. And something about climbing the real scary mountains makes that priority of what you take with you even more critical. A life or death issue. And so the psalmist is asking the question, what will you take? How can you get to the peak of this mountain? So interesting. And one of the reasons I love that psalm, well, maybe it's the other way around, maybe one of the reasons I love our name Gateway is because we're a congregation that centers exuberantly around the worship of Jesus, the King of glory. We we hang our hat, so to speak, on this peg of Jesus is glorious, Jesus is everything, we will worship him, and we will, by worshiping, he'll enter. As we open these gates to worship, these ancient doors, he will enter in. And as he enters in, he brings his kingdom. And when his, when his kingdom comes, it's a good thing. Things get set right in the presence of Jesus. So I love Psalm 24. And it's actually what these people in this first arrival with their palm branches and their shouts, it's what they were excited about. Jesus is fine. The Messiah is finally here. The bums are going to get kicked out. God's will is going to be done on planet Earth for a change. We won the lottery of existence. Here we go. Can you even imagine? New Testament holds that same hope out to us for his second arrival. call it the blessed hope. And that's such churchy language, we don't even know what we're saying. It means the happy anticipation. That we're on the edge of our seats with anxious energy going, could it really be today, Lord, when Jesus comes? Could it really be? Could it really be? And it's not, it's not the... 
speculation of people obsessed with prophecy who annoy me so much with their charts and their graphs and their predictions and their reading the news with fine-tooth comb. It's not that. It's the kind of eager anticipation of someone in love toward the one whom they love possibly returning home. It's not the charts and the graphs and the predictions. It's the heart-sick, joyful anticipation of the blessed hope that the king would come and along with him the kingdom, that his will would finally be done on planet Earth for a change. Can you even imagine? But in the meantime, as we wait We're called to offer our Hosanna, but without illusions. We're called to offer our joyful worship and climb the mountain of the Lord. And how do we do it? Well, we need clean hands and a pure heart. Which means we need to change. It's not all one or the other, I know. It's not when he comes, the kingdom comes. But until then, it's not here. No, it's now we carry the kingdom. And then he comes and perfects and completes and makes it exactly right. I've been thinking a little bit, I'm sorry, I'm off notes now, but like, I've been thinking a little bit this week about just the idea of He humbled himself, he took that cross, he emptied himself, he became love, and then he was exalted. Now it's our turn. It is our turn. It is our turn to empty ourselves and become love. It is our turn to endure the difficulty and the persecution, the long road of obedience in the same direction, no matter what it costs. Because we said our yes. We signed that check, but there was no amount, and now we're finding out what check we signed. It's our turn and our exaltation will come later just like his came later. First comes the humbling. First comes the sacrifice. Then comes the resurrection. Then comes the reward. That this is the season in which we find ourselves. The season in which we become love. We give our lives for the sake of those around us. The season in which we refuse to break the connection even if it kills us. As we wait for his arrival, we do it with our Hosanna strong, with no illusions about ourselves. Because the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and we whose lives he handpicked from life's garbage dump now have our lives built on him, and we are now being built into his royal temple. We're his home, we're his treasured possession, we're his very own people, and it is marvelous.